My Favorite Theorem. I'm your host, Evelyn Lamb. I'm a freelance math and science writer based in Paris for a few more days, um, but after that I'll be based in Salt Lake City, Utah. Um, and this is your other host. Hi, I'm Kevin Knudsen, professor of mathematics at the University of Florida, where it's raining. It's been raining for a week. After a, after a spring of no rain, now it's raining. So, uh, but that's okay. Yeah, I probably shouldn't tell you that it is absolutely gorgeous, sunny, and no. 75 degrees in Paris right now. You, you really shouldn't. You really shouldn't. Okay, then I won't. <laughs> okay. Um, so uh, each episode, we invite a mathematician on to find out about their favorite theorem. And today, we're very happy to welcome Eriko Hironaka onto the uh, show. So would you like to tell us a little bit about yourself, Eriko? Um, yes, thank you, first of all, for having me on this show. It's very flattering and exciting. And um, so I w worked at Florida State University for almost 20 years. Um, I was a professor there. And then I recently moved to the American Mathematical Society. I've been working there for two years, um, for one year, I guess, really full time so far. And I work in the book program. So I'm kind of somebody who is a mathematician, but is doing it from various angles. Um, yeah, I was really interested in having you on the podcast because I, you know, I think that's a, a cool perspective to have where you've been in the research world for a long time, but now you're also seeing a broader view maybe of math or, or kind of looking at it from a different angle than before. So do you mind uh, telling us a, a little bit about kind of what you do as a book person for the NMS? <laughs> well, um, yeah, so what do I do? Actually, I was kind of thrown into this um, job in a way. They said, okay, um, you're gonna work in the book program. Your job is basically talk to people um, about books and see if anybody wants to write a book. And if they do, then you um, keep talking with them and when they finally submit something, you prepare, basically the real maybe job part is to, once there's a submission, start it through a review process. And then also what's kind of exciting is to convince the publishing group to actually publish the book. Um, and that part, it requires me to think about how this book fits into mathematics and mathematical literature and, um, and then also how much it'll cost to produce the book and, 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 and what's involved in selling the book and who is the audience and how can it be presented in the best possible way. So I am kind of a, I think of myself as sort of the connector between the author who is thinking about the mathematics and the um, publishers who are thinking about basically, it's a, it's a nonprofit, the AMS is a nonprofit, but to sort of cover costs and to make this a reasonable project right yeah so, so that's you, kind of interesting yeah, yeah so you you see a lot of different aspects of this then yeah so i see um right i think for me like probably i don't know if i was more naive than most mathematicians but i think basically mathematicians don't really think beyond proving theorems and and conveying and communicating their ideas to other people. And maybe they also think about what to write on their Vita and <laughs> things like that. And that kind of thing is very different. And right now, for example, I don't 
um, really have a reason to keep up my Vita in the same way that I used to. That was a big change for me. Mm -hmm. um, right. But I still do. I still do mathematics. I still do research and give talks and things like that. I still write papers. Um, but that's really now become something just for me, um, oh, or wow. not for me. I mean, it's for math, I guess. It's so you know, but it's not for uh, you know, an institute uh, sort of. It's not for the dean. Yeah, it's not for the dean. It's not right? for the dean. Exactly. Yeah, right. That's really liberating, I would think. Right. It's super liber liberating, yeah. actually. Yeah. It's really. That's yeah. very cool. <laughs> yeah. well, I, I, I dream about that one of these days. Right. <laughs> no, it's, it's really great. And I feel like I can also, I'm supporting mathematics kind of from the background. Whereas um, I think now about professors as being kind of on the battlefield. You know, they're directly um, communicating with people, you know, students and individuals and things like that. And and working with the deans and kind of making mm -hmm. things, you know, making their program, their, their curriculum and their program and everything work. All right, so what have you chosen as your favorite theorem? Okay, well, I thought about that question. It's very interesting. I, and I've even asked other people just to get their reaction. It's a very interesting question. And I'm curious to know what other people have answered on your podcast. When I think of a theorem, I think about not just the statement, probably, but more maybe the proof. Mm. I might think of the proof of the theorem, like proofs I like, mm -hmm. theorems whose proof I like, or I might think about how this theorem really helped me because I really needed something. It all sounds very, it's actually kind of utilitarian, but when, I, when you know, <laughs> favorite theorem should be something more like, what made you feel really great, you know, or something. And I have to say <laughs> that for that, it's a theorem of my own. No, that's <laughs> cool. Great. So when I think, yeah, so I have a favorite theorem, or at least I guess the, the theorem that made the most, well, I guess the theorem that made me, that made me so excited, probably, and it was the first theorem I ever proved. Um, so I guess the reason it's my favorite theorem is because um, of, a mixture of not of not just feeling great that I proved the theorem, but also feeling um, like it was a big turning point in my life. Um, I felt like I had proved myself <laughs> in a way, um, and that's this theorem um, that maybe uh, I think of it as a polynomial periodicity theorem. And what it says is that. Do you want me to say the? what the theorem is yeah, or yeah, yeah, the background. Yeah. Or, Just well, so, throw it out uh, there and then we'll unpack it. it. Yeah. Yeah, then exactly. So the, theorem, the theorem says that if you have, in most generality, it says that if you have a finite CW complex, if you have a, a sort of nice space, in my case I was looking at um, quasi-projective varieties, but any kind of, you know, reasonably nice space, you can take, um, a sequence of coverings corresponding, a regular coverings corresponding to um, a choice of map from the fundamental group of the space to some, say, free abelian group. And the way you get the sequence of coverings is you um, uh, take that map and compose it with 
the map from that free abelian group to the free abelian group tensored with Z mod N. Okay. So if everything's finitely generated, that gives you a subjective map from your fundamental group of your base space, your space, to a finite abelian group. And now, by the general theorem of covering spaces, give you finite a sequence of, of finite coverings over your space. Um, and then if you have that space being um, having a, a sort of natural completion, you can talk about sort of natural branch coverings associated to those that's for each n. Okay. So my theorem was that, so what happens to the first Betty numbers of these things? The rank of the first homology of these coverings. And I showed that these, this sequence is actually has a pattern. And in fact, there is a polynomial for every set um, base space and map from the fundamental group of the base space to a free abelian group, there is a polynomial with possibly periodically changing coefficients so that the first Betty number is that polynomial evaluated at n. Wow. Where n is the sort of the degree of the covering. Wow. So, so the oh. Betty numbers are changing periodically with a and polynomial at, at the same time. Huh. The polynomials are changing periodically, but it's a it's a pattern. <laughs> it's a nice pattern. That's and there's a single polynomial telling you what all these goody numbers are. So what was the motivation behind this theorem? This problem of understanding the first bidding number of coverings comes from work of Zariski back in the early nineteen hundreds. And his goal was to understand moduli of plane curves with various kinds of singularities. And so simply put, this, what he did was he tried to um, distinguish uh, curves by um, looking at topology, blending topology with algebraic geometry. And this was kind of a new idea. No. It's not very well known about Zariski, but he... One of his innovations is bringing in topology to the study of algebraic geometry. But what he did was he was interested, for example, he showed that there are two, okay, sorry. So what he was interested in when he's talking about moduli of plane curves is whether or not you can get from one plane curve, like say with prescribed singularities, say sextic curve, degree six curve in C2 in the complex plane with um, exactly six cusps, six simple cusps. Okay. So six points in the plane can either lie on a conic or not. So general position means it doesn't lie on lines, it doesn't lie, lie on conic. Um, but if the six points lie on a conic, it turns out that you cannot move within the space of six sextics with six cusps to a sextic with six cusps not lying on a conic. Okay. They're, they're two dif distinct families. You would have to sort of leave that family to get from one to the other. Okay. You, can't, you can't deform them in the algebraic category. And um, to prove this, he, he said, well, look at the fundamental, basically, even though the idea of fundamental groups and studying fundamental groups is really new still and was just 
starting to be considered a tool for uh, for knot theory, for example, that came a little bit later, even. Right. So he said, but he said, okay, you can tell that they're different because their topology is different. For example, take coverings, take take your curve, say it's it's given by the equation f of x y equals zero. Mm -hmm. So f of x y is a polynomial. Take the polynomial z to the n equals f of x y. You get a surface in three-dimensional space. Mm -hmm. And now look at the first Betty number of that. So the first Betty number, the first homology, can be kind of described algebraically um, in terms of, of um, you know, other things, divisors and things like that. Right. You can sort of think of it as a very algebraic invariant, but you can also think of it as a topological invariant totally depending on the topology, not forget algebraic, you know, forget complex analysis, forget everything. Mm -hmm. And he showed that if you take the sextics with six cups and you took the z to the n equals f of x, y, you get things with first Betty number non-trivial and by the way, periodically changing with n. In fact, when six divides n, it's non-trivial, it jumps. When okay. six, every time six divides n, it jumps. Otherwise, it's sort of it's it's I can't remember. It. I think it's zero. Mm -hmm. But it but in the case when the cusps are in general position, the first Betty numbers are always zero. Okay. So that must mean that the topology is different. And if the topology is different, they can't be algebraically equivalent. Very. So that was the process of thinking. So that topology can tell you something about algebraic geometry. Okay. And that kind of topology is what geometric topologists study now, fundamental groups, etc. Um, but this was all a very new idea. Yeah. And so that's kind of the environment that your theorem lives in is this um, intersection between topology and algebraic geometry. That's right. So, so my theorem, uh, Sarnak, conjectured, I was working on fundamental groups of complements of, of plane curves, especially with, with uh, multiple components mm -hmm. for my thesis. And um, Peter Sarnak was looking at um, certain problems coming from number theory. He um, wondered, hearing about what I did about fundamental groups and Alexander polynomials, which have to do with Betty numbers of coverings, he, he asked, okay, can you show that the Betty numbers of coverings are periodic or polynomial periodic, mm -hmm. which was that other thing. And um, so I thought, okay, this, I'll, I'll do this. And, and since I was already working kind of topologically, I could get the topological part by looking at the unbranched co coverings. Mm -hmm. And then I had to complete it. And the completion, to understand the completion, sort of the rest, there's a difference between the Betty numbers of the unbranched covering and the Betty numbers of the branch coverings. To understand that, I need to understand intersections of curves on the surface. So sort of intersection theory of algebraic curves. And these are, have very special properties, nice properties coming from the fact that we're talking about varieties. Right. And I use that to complete the proof. So there was a, it was a real blend of topology and algebraic geometry. That's what made it really fun. That's a lot of mathematics going on. And I love, I love your confidence that Peter Sarnak said, hey, can you do this? You're like, yeah, I can do this. <laughs> <laughs> 
Right. Well, I was feeling pretty desperate. I was really at time. Should I do math? Should I not do math? You know, do I belong here? And then I thought, okay, I'll try this. Mm -hmm. If it works, you know, maybe that's a sign. <laughs> so uh, what have you chosen to pair with this theorem? Um, so as it happens, after I proved this theorem and I showed it to Sarnak, um, and I, he, I basically wrote a three-page outline of the theorem, of the proof, and I showed it to him, and he looked at it carefully, and then he said, yeah, you know, this, this looks right. And also, you know, you can feel it when you have it. It's only everything has become simpler. And mm -hmm. I happened, and I was sort of glowing with this and driving to from Stanford to Berkeley, which is um, about an hour drive, and I usually took a kind of nicer route through the hills um, mm -hmm. to the west. So you can imagine um, driving with the, you know, these um, bales and, you know, woods and, and um, it was, it was beautiful sunshine and everything. And um, the Firebird Suite, you know, sort of starts out very quiet and it just, it just perfectly represented what it feels like to prove a theorem. So it starts right. really quiet then it gets really choppy and frenzied and things like that. And then it's scary, it, um, right? Yeah. Yeah. And scary, right, exactly. Yeah. Like a struggling bird, he's you know, anxious and frightened and you know, really, really unsettling. And then there's this real gentleness, like, you know, feeling like it's gonna be okay, it's gonna be okay. Mm -hmm. But that also is a bit disturbing. It's like there's something about it that's disturbing. Right. And so, it, you know, it keeps you listening. Even though it's very sweet and the themes are developed, it's a very um, beautiful theme. And then there's this bang and then it becomes really frenzied again, just super frenzied, but excited. Mm -hmm. you know? and, then you, and then it becomes bolder and bolder and then that melody starts to come in and it starts to really come together, really come together. And, and then it starts to feel like you're running, like that there's a, there's a direction, a direction. And, and then finally it gets quiet again and, and there's this serenity. And this time the serenity is real. You know, it's mm -hmm. very, it's all this, all this stuff has built up to it. And that starts to build and build and build, and the beautiful theme comes out in the end, and just it's just like this glorious, you know, <laughs> um, you know, wonder at the end, very end, and that just it was like all my excitement was just ex exemplified in this piece of music. Oh, that's great. I love that picture of you uh, driving through California, blasting firebirds, <laughs> yes, exactly, and, and like with this triumphant proof that you've just done. Uh, that's really a great picture. Yeah, it is great. Actually, so my, my son just finished high school and he wants to be a composer. He's gonna to go to college and study, and study composition. And I actually sort of credit that piece, Firebird Suite, as one of the pieces that really motivated him to become a composer. He, he loves that piece. Um, yeah. That and Rhapsody in Blue, but um, uh -huh. yeah. So. Oh, I mean, it really tells a story. It does, and, yeah. It's really spectacular, yeah. yeah. So I think uh, maybe a lot of our, our, our listeners don't know that um, that you have a rather famous father. Yeah. Um, your father won the Fields Medal for, for proving resolution of singularities in characteristic zero, right? 
Yes. What, what, what was that like? <laughs> um, yeah, so I had a really strange relationship with mathematics because I grew up with a mathematician father. I avoided math like the plague, you know, mm -hmm. partly because my father was a mathematician and I thought that was kind of strange that it didn't fit in with the rest of the world <laughs> that I knew. <laughs> Um, I grew up in the suburbs. It wasn't particularly intellectual background, you know. Right. And um, I just, for me, the challenge of, to my life was to, to s figure out how to fit in, which mm -hmm. I was failing at miserably. But I thought, you know, that was my challenge. And doing well in math was, uh, was not the way to fit in <laughs> in school. <laughs> so um, I, I would kind of deliberately add in mistakes to make sure that I didn't get a good grade. I would really like really? Wow. myself if I forgot and I'd like, you know, get a high grade and everybody would say, how did she do that? And like, you know, just, <laughs> it's kind of, you know, I mean, it was when you're, I was, um, I found, I thought of math as sort of this embarrassment in a way, to tell the truth, strangely enough. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, but on the other hand, I, through my father and his friends and colleagues, I knew that they were, that mathematics also had this very beautiful side and it was the people who did it were very happy <laughs> people, it seemed. And it was a, I saw that other side as well. And I think that was an advantage because um, mm -hmm. I knew that math was really cool. It just that I, that wasn't my thing. I didn't want to do that. Also, my teachers were not very you know, exciting. The math math teachers seem to make math as boring as possible. So, you know, mm. um, so I had this kind of split personality when it came to math um, or split feeling about what math was. Yeah. Um, but then when I started to do math, I started somehow accidentally to do math in college and I actually got attracted to it. And I, um, it was after sort of, you know, vaguely stumbling through calculus and things like that. So I never really learned calculus, um, but I, I started taking, I started skipping through calculus and, and um, I, I took more advanced classes and it, it just really clicked and I, I got hooked. Yeah. Yeah. So I learned calculus in, in graduate school as some people do. Sure. Well, <laughs> that's, teaching. yeah, right. That's, yeah. When you, that's when you really learn it anyway. That's right. <laughs> yeah. So that was my strain. But yeah, I, so I think when people think of, in, I think it's not obvious how that's an advantage. Mm -hmm. Because in some cases, it could be that they were um, nurtured in mathematics. I mean, I talk to my kids about mathematics, and we, it's a fun thing to we do together. Um, but I don't think that's necessarily the case of people with mathematical parents. Sure. And in my, it certainly wasn't the case in, for me. Um, but still, it was an advantage because I still knew what, that there was this thing called mathematics, and many people don't know that. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, and like you said, you knew that mathematicians were happy with their work. And yes, that's <laughs> true. Yeah. <laughs> and, and just even knowing that, that there's still math to prove. That was something when I started doing math, I didn't really understand that there was still more math to do. It wasn't just learning calculus really well. Um, but 
it's, you know, the, going and finding and exploring these new things. Yeah, I, yeah. Had that, I had that same experience. I remember when I was in high school thinking, you know, telling people, well, I'm going to go to graduate school and be a math professor. And they said, well, what do you do? And I said, well, I don't know. I guess you write another calculus book, right? I, I thought that, you know, <laughs> um, which we certainly do not need, right? Right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Or, or we need different kinds, maybe. Well, okay. So, so I, I say that, but I'm actually writing one, so that, you know. <laughs> Just in my spare time, right? I have so much of it these days. I think there is a need for calculus books. It's just maybe different kinds. Yeah, right, right. Yeah. Found the right. Well, well. Now that I know someone at the publishing house at AMS, maybe. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to follow up on this. <laughs> oh wow! Well, this has been fun. Yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah, well, thank you for asking me. It got me, it gave me the chance to think about different things. And um, it's been fun talking with people about what's your favorite theory? You yeah. Yep. Good math right. conversation starter. Yeah. Right. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Thanks for joining us, Echo. Okay. Thank you. Thanks for listening to My Favorite Theorem, hosted by Kevin Knudsen and Evelyn Lamb. The music you're hearing is a piece called Fractalia, a percussion quartet performed by four high school students from Gainesville, Florida. They are Blake Crawford, Gus Knudsen, Del Mitchell, and Bachan Nguyen. You can find more information about the mathematicians and theorems featured in this podcast, along with other delightful mathematical treats, at Kevin's website, kpknudsen.com, and Evelyn's blog, Roots of Unity, on the Scientific American Blog Network. We love to hear from our listeners, so please drop us a line at myfavoritetheorem at gmail.com. Or you can find us on Facebook and Twitter. Kevin's handle on Twitter is at Nivignazdunk. That's Kevin spelled backwards, followed by Knudsen spelled backwards. And Evelyn's is at Evelyn J. Lamb. The show itself also has a Twitter feed. The handle is M-Y-F-A-V-E-T-H-M. That's at my favorite theorem. Join us next time to learn another fascinating piece of mathematics.